Well, it's good to see you. Uh, there's a lot more of you here this week than last week. Uh, last week was just the, when everybody was away, I guess. And so, uh, glad to be back. My name is Daryl Young. And uh, as it says on my business card up there, I am the director of international workshops for an outfit called the Charles Simeon Trust. For those of you that weren't here last week, I know Trevor and Leslie because Trevor was the youth pastor in the church that I was the senior pastor in, in Strathmore. And so we got to know each other that way, became great friends. Then he moved on and then this happened. And so I'm very excited to be here. Now I've moved on from there and I'm doing this thing where we put on two and a half day workshops all over North America, a lot, lot of them going in the States, a bunch of them in Canada, and internationally. And it grew too fast for the guy that was in charge of it, and so they asked me to, to run the international side of that. So we do about 55 of these a year worldwide, and about half of those are off the, the, the theater of North America. Now, just as a little update, I mentioned last week that Trevor was making some connections for us. As a result of the connections that Trevor made for us, we just found out we're probably going to be in Vancouver next year, and then maybe Montreal the year after that. I uh, just found out that um, we're probably going back to Dubai, which maybe gets us into Pakistan, which my boss doesn't want me to go to Pakistan, but I kind of do, because there's a guy there that's overseeing 50 pastors. And that guy named Wasim has no resources whatsoever, and the pastors that he's working with have even less. And so I want to go. But there's a little security issue around that going to Pakistan that we need to sort out. Um, I was just in the Dominican Republic, and then next month I go to Malaysia and the Philippines. Philippines will be the first time we're going there. So these doors are just popping open all over the place. Um, but I want to show you a little bit of India. We're going back to India in February, um, and we have four workshops happening there. And so if you ever watch, uh, there's a show that comes on. I forget the name of it. Um, maybe you've seen this show a couple times. Are you thinking of the show I'm thinking of? No, it's called Amazing Race. And they go all over the place and they ride around in these things. I put this up because everybody watches The Amazing Race. And that's a tuk-tuk. You, you can squeeze about four or five guys if you really push it into the back of that thing and just bounce along these roads. And it's a really great cultural experience to ride around in a tuk-tuk with an Indian wild man who's driving the thing. So um, I put that up there for that. That's um, a little bit on the lighthearted side, although those things swarm the streets. They're everywhere, along with all the cows and donkeys and just people walking around and cars, which, you know, they have, some of these guys have these really nice cars. The nicer your car, the more right-of-way you think you have. <laughs> and so it's just crazy. But there's also this reality here. Um, we were just walking around taking pictures. It's kind of bright in here, so you can't see it that well. But that's just a guy sitting on a mat. That's his whole world. Uh, everything he's got is right there. And he's literally reaching out. Can you give me something that will help me through the night? Because he's looking for something just for one night. He's not thinking about a five-year plan. He's thinking about a five-minute plan. And his five-minute plan is just, I need to survive. And you see this all over the place. India's got about a billion people. They're going to surpass the population of China in the next 20 or 30 years. They have no infrastructure to handle this at all, although they're trying. And there's, lots of, there's a great rising middle class in India, and the church there currently has more Christians than the population of the United States. But there are no seminaries. There's no infrastructure to train these pastors. And so when we go, a lot of these guys just, they've maybe taken a little bit of seminary. They've done some of that. But so many of them just have, have nothing. You, your, I would say that most of you have a theological library that's, that's better than most of the pastors that we, that we train over there. I'm not talking about you being pastors with a whole library. I'm talking about you being, 
you know, lay people, just the average Christian, your Christian books probably exceed what most of these guys have, a whole room full of 30 of them all put together. Now, there are signs of life here. This next picture is a guy named uh, Christopher David. He grew up in a Christian home uh, that goes back three or four generations. You say, how does that happen? Well, some of the first missionaries got into India two, three hundred years ago. So there's a strong Christian tradition in India. There's a, there's a whole bunch of them. And uh, he grew up in a great Christian home, but he stepped away from it. He got um, kind of enamored with the idea of atheism or other philosophies. And so he stepped back from his Christian faith and explored that. But then he started reading a guy named C.S. Lewis. And just through this intellectual uh, rediscovery, came back to his Christian faith. And so we met him, and uh, we've got our eye on him. He's going to be going to a seminary, and hopefully he'll be one of our trainers. Because what we want to do is get them teaching this material. I think the next slide just proves that I actually went and did some of this. Yeah, that's me. There's my um, interpreter there. We do a lot of things through interpretation. What's funny, though, is if we have a room full of Indian guys like this, and I'll say something, then it'll get interpreted. If the interpreter messes up, the whole room will come alive because half of them speak English. And so um, to be an interpreter there is kind of a challenge, but, um, but it does make the whole process pretty cumbersome and kind of difficult. And then I think I have one more uh, picture here. Yeah, that's Edwin. He's become a friend of mine. He's a pastor. He's planting a church in the city of uh, Bangalore and uh, pretty tough on him, but he is a gifted trainer. And so we want to invest in him so that he can train. And then we don't need translation. He can just give it in his own culture, his own language. Uh, he actually corrected me one time. I used an illustration that involved movies. Well, when you go to the movies, this happened. And he came up to me afterwards. He says, you know, most of these Indian guys think go to the movies is a sin. <laughs> okay. So um, when, when he gets up and trains, we avoid those kind of cultural missteps that might happen when I'm up there. Anyway, just wanted to show you that real quick. That's what we're into. Uh, what we're really into today is we want to share the word with you. Let's take a moment right now and trust God once again for this moment. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for its clarity, and we pray that by your spirit, you would light it up so that we could understand. We're trusting you now in the name of Christ. Amen. Lately, I, I've been sensing, and I'm sure you have too, a certain kind of angst in our culture, and, and maybe even among people who call themselves Christians, Christ followers, people who say they believe in Jesus. I think there's just a certain kind of turmoil that seems to be going on in our hearts. I suspect that a lot of it surrounds too much time with the computer. And that's a whole other subject that we can talk about. There's all these studies being done that the more you relate to your computer, the less you're able to relate to people. And this is causing us some turmoil. Some of you probably have parents or grandparents that frankly are watching too much conservative talk TV. And that, and that, that really does, I mean, I think it really does stir some of these guys up because they, they see that and then they get angry and they think all this stuff is really going on and it really makes them mad. Um, I have the opposite problem with my, one of my daughters. She watches too much of the stuff on the far left, and that's making her angry. And so I, I think we're, we devote ourselves to these things too much. So I think there's three distinct but possibly related issues. One is discouragement over modern public life. And I think, again, exacerbated by our time that we spend with media. And the second, I think, is dissatisfaction with our relative wealth. And you might say, well, I'm not wealthy, and I'm here to tell you absolutely, objectively, yes, you are. I don't want to hear any complaints. <laughs> if you are on social assistance and you're in this room, you're probably in the top 10% of the wealthiest people on the planet. 
if you have a job and if you drove a car here, you have a place to go, whether you rent it or not, you're probably in the top one or maybe the top 2% of wealth on the planet. Yet, with all of the wealth that surrounds us, we're dissatisfied. We're not happy. Because we tend to look up to see who's wealthier than us. We go, oh. We don't tend to look down and see how opulent our own lavish lifestyles are. So discouragement, I think, over just what we're feeling and sensing around us in the culture. Dissatisfaction with the wealth. And then a certain kind of loneliness. And I come back to this idea of the media. The more connected we are, the more lonely we feel. In fact, I'm sure that most of you would be fascinated by a book by Sherry Turkle called Alone Together. She talks about how this relationship with our telephones, our cell phones, is not really connecting us. It's actually separating us. In fact, she has this line that I'm sure you will, will resonate with you. I think it's a line that captures the essence of the book, and it's this, we'd rather text than talk. There's truth in that, isn't it? Back in the old days, when you used to phone somebody, when I was, you know, and when Tim, when we were younger, um, you would phone somebody, and if you got the answering machine, you were disappointed. You went, oh, I got their answering machine. Well, things have changed. Now, when you phone somebody, you're secretly hoping that it'll go to voicemail. You, you're laughing because you know it's true. Well, all this is part of a certain kind of loneliness that we're feeling in our days. And so, in the face of this disappointment and loneliness, what do we need? I think we need this, and, and hear these words carefully. I, I wrote them carefully. We need a vision for our eternal physical destiny that is seen through the lens of our current physical reality. I'll say it again. We need a vision for our eternal physical destiny that is seen through the lens of our current physical reality. Notice the wording there. You might say, well, why not heavenly? Why didn't he say our eternal heavenly or our eternal spiritual destiny? Well, we're going to get to that. And I think it makes a big difference. Psalm 30, turn in your Bibles if you have one, to Psalm 30. It portrays a life-restoring God who takes care of his own. Psalm 30 portrays a life-restoring God who takes care of his own. Let's begin reading. We're going to start in verse 1 and just go to verse 3. Psalm 30, verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Well, the first thing he does here is he praises the Lord for protection, for healing, and for restoration. And he uses an amazingly powerful image here. He says that you have drawn me up. The imagery of that word is as if you have a bucket on the end of a rope and it's down there in the water and you draw it up. You're drawing this bucket up out of a deep well, out of a darkness. And so that's the image here. We have been drawn up out of darkness. We have drawn, been drawn up out of this terrible place up into the sunlight. So picture the Lord doing this with a rope and just pulling you up. That's the idea. You have drawn me up. And good things have happened to him when he was drawn up. First, 
is protection from his enemies. You have not let my enemies stand over me in victory. Maybe you see, you know, a boxing match and the one guy knocks the other guy down and he stands over him with his fist being pumped in victory. The psalmist is saying, you didn't let that happen, Lord. You did not let my enemies overcome me. So that was one. What's the second one? Healing. You have brought healing. You have healed me. Is anyone here sick? Is anyone here have some physical trauma? Well, there is healing here. In some ways, I think this whole psalm is about healing. And then third, in verse 3, he says restoration. He was almost dead in the psalmist's idea, in David's idea, it's like he was so, it was so bad that it was as if he was already dead. That's how he felt. I have to be reminded here that this is poetry. Psalms are, are poetry, and so they express things. They express feelings. Sometimes it's almost, it's kind of exaggerated. I think that's going on here. He's saying, I was in Sheol. We talked about Sheol last week. It's not necessarily hell the way we conceive of it. It's the, in the Jewish mind, it's the place of the dead. It's the underworld. It's that darkness down there where dead people go. And he's saying, I was like that. And you have brought me up. You have restored me to life. Well, there's some good things going on already. Let's keep reading. Look at verses 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. That's great news, isn't it? Think about that. If God is your father, it's good to know that if you mess up, he's only going to be angry for a minute. But his favor is going to be on you for a lifetime. This is great news. So no wonder the psalmist is saying, yeah, I might weep during the night. But ah, in the morning, a sunrise. And you've probably experienced that in your own life. Maybe there's something dark going on, something calamitous, something difficult, something impending. And at night, it can just seem worse. But the sun will rise in the morning. And when the sun does come up, sometimes even that just can offer a little bit of perspective. You know, I've got a new day. Maybe I'll get after this thing. Maybe I'll face this thing. Maybe it will work out. Well, the psalmist is saying that in his dependence on the Lord, yes, weeping might carry on through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Well, what often happens to us happened to him. Let's read verses 6 and 7. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. I think what he's doing is he's reflecting back here. He's reflecting back on his journey. And what happened was things were going pretty well. And so he presumed upon God's kindness. In his prosperity, he let down his guard. He said, I'll never be moved. I'm in a strong place. And again, we can totally relate to this. Things are going well. Maybe you step back a little bit from your dependence on the Lord. Things are going well. Maybe you step back a little bit from your commitments. 
And that's happened to him, the danger of pride. And so what he's doing here as he's writing this is he's remembering that complacency. He's remembering that moment of self-confidence. And he got stung by it. It got him into trouble. So he remembers about crying out to the Lord. Look at verse 8 now. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. He's remembering the moment of praying. He's remembering calling out to the Lord. And part of what I really love about this is how refreshingly human it is. It's almost like he's bargaining with God. Lord, if I go down to the pit, if you let me fall, who's going to praise you? Who's going to be around? Who's going to be left to sing to you? So really, Lord, it's actually kind of in your best interest to keep me together here. Because then there will still be some voices rising up in praise to you. It seems like that's almost what he's saying. Well, what he is saying in the middle of all that is he's giving a great plea for mercy. A great cry of dependence. And one of the big things for my Christian life and one of the, so therefore one of the things that I, I say a lot is I think the fundamental posture of a Christian is that of dependence. I think that's what it's about. I remember my dad one time, my dad could be kind of a contrarian. He used to go to this Bible study and um, somebody posited this idea, you know, Christians getting together in a room can, can be very positive. And I know you have these small groups, but it can also be a fraught with danger <laughs> and because a lot of silly things can be said. And one time, that somebody said, well, is prayer a crutch? Prayer is not a crutch. Being a prayerful person, that doesn't mean you're weak. And so this was in an era where there was this kind of victoriousness about the Christian life. And so they were all agreeing, yes, being a prayerful person is not expressing weakness. It's actually fine. And it's not a, prayer is not a crutch. And my dad said, um, maybe prayer is a crutch. In fact, maybe it's more than a crutch. Maybe prayer is like an emergency ward. <laughs> And I think there's some truth in there. I, I appreciate what the people were saying about prayer not being a crutch, but I think my dad was onto something here. No, we are expressing our need. We are expressing our problems. We are expressing our weakness, and we need a God who's strong. That's what's happening here. This great prayer of mercy. Well then, what do we have left? Final two verses. Look at them. Verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The tears have been turned into the joy of a new day. Mourning has been turned into dancing. The clothes the clothing of, of, of mourning have been turned, taken off and new clothes of gladness have been given. I think that the significance of Psalm 30 emerges in the context of the Hebrew covenant. Covenant. That's an important word that really can be boiled down to the idea of promise. God made a promise to Abraham way back in Genesis. He said, I'll make you a great people. You'll have more descendants than the stars in the heaven. 
and you will bless all the nations. I will bless all the nations through you. And central to this covenant was the promise of life. And death was the opposite of of that promise. But the continuity and the receiving of this life depended upon the believer's faithfulness to God. A life characterized by love and obedience to the Lord. But the psalmist, he fell into the trap of complacency, of this false sense of confidence that can overcome us when things are going well. He thought he was secure, standing strong, but then he got struck down by some kind of sickness. It shattered that illusion of immortality, and it brought him to the face of death. And he feared the very real consequences of that, and so he turned to the Lord. And that started him on the road back to health. And I think this is a very human journey. I think this is where we are. And he had a new awareness of the source of that help. And a new awareness that that would restore him for eternity. For all of his life. And so his praise should continue forever. Well, how is it going to work out that David would praise the Lord forever? How will it work out that any of us, or all of us, would have an eternity of praising the Lord? I think ultimately it happens through the resurrection of Christ. So we have here, he is risen. He is risen means something very powerful for you. What he is risen means is that in a very real sense, you are risen. Paul told the Colossians, you are seated in the heavenlies. There's a sense where the reality of his being resurrected and ascended is already your reality, but there's another greater, more, uh, there's another greater reality still to come for each one of us. So when we say he has been resurrected, the reality is, the truth is, the promise is you will be resurrected as well. Did you know that? That's the promise for you. Now, what does this mean? Let me put it another way. What happens when I die? Let me put it another way. What happens to me when I die? This is something that I'm afraid doesn't come out enough in our Christian funerals. I have a problem with the way a lot of funerals are done. You're going to go to a lot of of even Christian funerals and you're going to hear that Uncle Joe is, maybe he's floating in the rafters, looking down at us now. Uncle Joe is not up in the rafters. He's... Talk about a better place. You'll often hear, well, Joe's in a better place. Yeah, he's in a much better place than the rafters looking down and worrying about, you know, our food at the reception or how much fun we're having. Where is Uncle Joe? Well, Uncle Joe, his spirit is now with Jesus. This is what we understand from Scripture. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. So his spirit now has gone to what we call, what the Bible calls heaven which is a spiritual realm that we can't see and feel right now. Where's his body? Well, it's wherever we put his body. It might be in a casket. It might be cremated. You know, we put his body in the ground and his body is decaying until a moment in the future. We don't know when it's going to be. But at some point, there's going to be a really loud trumpet blast that everybody on earth will hear. There's going to be a really bright flash And there's going to be a cry of an archangel that every human will hear. And in that moment, Jesus will return to the earth. 
Jesus, in his physicality, will return to the earth. And he's going to bring with him all those people who have ever died before. He's going to bring their spirits and they will be connected to their bodies. So graves are going to pop up open all over the world. And people physically will be rejoined with their bodies. And those people, us, are going to walk on the earth. Now it's not going to be just this same earth. This earth is decaying. Our bodies are decaying. You're going to get a new body. We're going to get a new earth. This is called the new creation. And this is a reality that blows away any idea of floating around in heaven for all of eternity. But I'm afraid that this is the idea that's drifted into our thinking. When we die, we go to heaven and we float around on clouds for eternity. There's two problems with that. One is it sounds very boring. It's not compelling at all. And the other is that it's not the Bible's description at all. Yes, we will go to heaven temporarily. In fact, remember that old song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My, heavers, my, what my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. This reflects this terrible teaching. I hope you guys didn't sing that song a couple weeks ago here. <laughs> It'd be better to put it, heaven is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Treasures are laid up somewhere here on this earth. Someone needs to rewrite that lyric. We're going to pass through heaven and return to the earth and live a physical reality here. You're saying, that sounds weird. Sure, fine. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Just real quick, look at a couple verses. Romans chapter 8 and verse 23 says this. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies are going to be redeemed. And so this talk about, oh, the body, it's just a tent. It's just a corrupt, you know, awful physical tent for the Spirit. No, that's not the Bible's idea at all. Our bodies are temples of the Spirit. Our bodies mean something. That's why we're so profoundly pro-life in so many ways. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's your physical body connected to immortality. It's awesome to think about. Look over to Colossians chapter 1. Sorry, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's what I was referring to. When Christ comes back to the earth, if you've already died, you'll come back to the earth. If you're alive, bang, you're going to experience this wild thing where, poof, you have a new body. The earth is new, newly created. And that's the deal. And here we go, living forever with 
the Lord with each other, with all the nations, singing out praise to God. The God who raised this man in the Psalm 30 and restored him to life is the same God who raised his son from the dead and will ultimately resurrect all believers to a new, resurrected, physical life in the new creation. So, what happens when I die? And what will the new creation be like? I've enjoyed kind of speculating about that. I do think, this is not speculating, I think that we'll be involved in work. But it won't be work that produces perspiration. That was the curse. The, the curse in Genesis chapter 2 was, Genesis chapter 3, was not that the man would have to work. Work was assigned before the fall, before the sin, before all that trouble. The curse was that he would have to make bread and it would produce sweat. He would have to produce uh, bread by the sweat of his brow. So I think we'll be involved in work. I think we'll be involved in creativity. I'm an amateur photographer. I'm wondering what will the technology be like in the new creation for photography? I don't know. But I think there will be some kind of artistic thing that will be available to us. You know, I got to thinking about this a few years ago. I was working at a summer camp where I was, I was there for a week at the summer camp and there was a young lady on the staff and she was born without a left hand. Her, her arm came to an end right about here. And she was at this adventure camp where they did rock climbing and backpacking and cycling and canoeing and all this kind of stuff. And so she was trying to work that out and this very physical thing that required you to have all this physicality to carry out this camp. And she was serving on this staff and trying to, trying to find her, her spot there. And so we were sitting on the dock one afternoon and we got to speculating about the new creation. And I asked her, I said, I hope this isn't an offensive question, but I, I, I'm just curious. Do you think that you'll be, have your hand fully restored in the new creation? And she said, I, I don't know. I said, do you want it? And she said, I don't know, because this is all I've ever known. She said, no, I, I don't think so. I think in the new creation, I, I, I still won't have a left hand. I have no idea. I really don't. But to me, there's, this, there's kind of a joy in thinking about what is, gonna, what is that all going to be like? There's, a, there's an arc to cosmic history. There's creation. There's fall. There's redemption and the new creation. That is, that is the arc of God's cosmic history. We get caught up in that through Jesus Christ. Here's the amazing part. You can join that arc. You can join that story because of the simple words of Jesus Christ. When he showed up and he started doing his ministry on the shores of Galilee, he said, repent and believe. For the kingdom of God is here. There's a larger sense. The kingdom of God is here and it's coming. This is the concern of the New Testament. Yes, this new kingdom is here in Jesus. And yet it's coming in a full and complete way. And we want everybody here to join that cosmic story. We want everybody to join into that family and you do it through repenting, through turning away from your sins, and believing through trusting that Jesus Christ is the Savior. That he really did walk around on this earth. He really did say and do all the things he said and did. And that he really was killed and buried and then rose again. And then ascended 
where now he reigns over all things. Yeah, things on this earth don't look good, but guess what? The Lord is in charge. Satan is not in control of this earth. The Lord is in control of this earth. And for whatever reasons, for whatever purposes, yeah, there are bad things that happen. There are men sitting on a sidewalk in Bangalore, India, starving to death and just reaching out for some kind of help. That's horrible. We have the opportunity to be a blessing. I encourage you to get out and do things. Go places. I've got some ideas for you. Talk to me afterwards if you want to go do something. There is a world of opportunity for you to go and sacrifice and serve and make a difference. But in the end, the Lord will restore all things. And amazingly, we have this opportunity here to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup. The bread reminding us of the broken body of Christ, broken for you. The cup reminding us of the blood of Christ spilled for you, for your forgiveness. Someone once said that the blood of Christ is the strongest and the only detergent strong enough to clean the stain of sin. And so we take part in this meal. And this very simple, humble meal that we take part in today reminds us of a great future feast that we will enjoy together. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. There will be a new reality in the new creation. And what will that feast be like? That's before us. And that's for you. So there's a, a little sense that today we're participating in and foreshadowing this great feast that we'll enjoy in the new creation. And so I encourage you to eat and drink deeply this morning of what is before you and to remember where you're going, to remember where we're going. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to sing. Is that right? Okay, let's all stand.